Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. In all aspects of life, human beings would rather exercise control than risk placing trust. We treat relationships like business deals as though marriage, family, community, and friendship are all quid pro quo, and we establish rules and policies to control these relationships. When we follow these rules and others do not, we act offended. As victims, we gain power to accuse, influence, and control others. Worse, we do the same in our dealings with God. In the Gospel of Mark, we ask, What must I do to inherit eternal life? Or, Lord, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. We refuse to trust in the Lord, and what we lack in commitment to His cause is replaced by self-assuredness. We distort His teaching, bending and twisting it to look like one of our lame rules. Then we place our trust in the rules that we fashion with our own hands. To our own peril, we ignore the wisdom of Ray Henderson. The best things in life are free. Give us a word, O Bartimaeus, son of Timaeus. Richard and I discuss the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10, verses 46 to 52. You're listening to the Bible as literature. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 182 of the Bible as Literature podcast. One thing, Richard, that you and I do often is try to define our terminology. There are words that we use repeatedly. One term that we use often is the word trust. Faith, belief, trust. We have to keep redefining what we mean by faith because most people think of faith as a formulation or a system of ideas that you make a leap to believe in the way people believe in something. But that's not what Scripture is talking about, and that's not how we define the term. Right. When we talk about faith in modern English, we're usually talking about a body of abstract ideas and abstract dogmas that one believes in. And so that's why you can talk just as much about the Catholic Church as about the Catholic faith. What is the Catholic faith? Well, it's a system of dogmas. What's the Protestant faith? How does the Protestant faith differ from the Catholic faith? That's how it's used in English. But in Greek, in the New Testament, it means trust, meaning that you know without knowing. When I write a check and I give it to somebody, they trust that that is as good as money. And so they don't argue with me. We don't have a discussion. Why are you giving me a check? 
they take the check and then they take it to their bank because we know the system. We trust the system. We know that that's how it works. So does it mean they know it's worth money? No, they don't know it's actually worth money until they take it to the bank and they give the money to them, but they trust. In scripture, there are two types of uncertainty. The first is the rational uncertainty attributable to anyone who places trust in anything. You trust that your money is in the bank, but it's entirely possible that something could change. Someone could cheat you, the system could fail. That's one way in which uncertainty plays a role in the act of placing trust. But there's another dimension. It could be that the one who actually owns the bank decides at the end, despite the fact that you've put your money in that bank, that he's not going to give you your deposit back and you're not going to get a return. You're not going to get any interest for whatever reason. That is possible. And in scripture, both types of uncertainty are important when we're talking about faith. Because the first type, when Jesus trusts in the Father, he's giving up his power to the Father. He's acting the way we are called to act. He's saying, I have no control over the outcome of the act of sowing the seed. Just like a farmer has no control over the outcome when they go to plant their crop. But my father asked me to. I trust my father. I trust his instruction. And so therefore, I will sow the seed. And I will trust that it's going to do what my father wants it to do. At the same time, Jesus knows that only the father in the end judges. That he himself, and in the Gospel of John, he says, I don't judge. I only hear what's written and I judge. Meaning that he's deferring authority again to his father. And for those of us who are baptized and who have accepted the call of discipleship under the authority of Scripture, we trust, rather we are called to trust, the way Jesus trusted. But part of that means that there's an uncertainty about what the owner of the bank will do when we face the judgment. So you trust, but you don't know in a kind of self-righteous, triumphant spirit of realized eschatology that you're saved and everything's fine. How can that be when we know that there's a judgment? And this is the kind of psychological split that took place between the Latin church and the Protestant church in the Middle Ages. Well, I'm saved by grace or by works, and I'm saying that both approaches miss the mark. You have to do the work because you are called to do it and commanded to do it. But even if you do it, it will amount to nothing if the one who is going to judge you decides to keep you or throw you out. At the heart of this question of trust is your powerlessness like the children in Mark. There are libertarian camps where they decide we don't trust the Federal Reserve. And so they don't use money. They use gold in order to buy their hot dogs at the camp. That's what it means not to trust in money because money is a promise. Are you saved because of your faith or because of your works? Do you trust in God or do you trust in the grace that then you can use against God or with God or perhaps manipulating God? And this is why I think the metaphor, the image of the sower is key in Mark. A sower goes out to sow. Or do we have enough food to feed everybody? This is the problem that Jesus is confronting. On the one hand, 
as the sower, he goes out to sow. Now, any sower knows that he's not going to know if it's going to work for another several months. He's going to do his work trusting that it's going to grow. I mean, if he knew it wasn't going to grow, he wouldn't bother planting the seed. So he does it just to see. Now he gets after the disciples when they say, hey, I'm not sure we have enough food for everybody. And he says, no, no, no. All you need is this little bit and it's going to be enough because you are not trusting in the father to provide. And this is the contrast. Jesus goes out to sow knowing that it's going to bear the fruit it's going to bear. The disciples do not trust because they already have made up their mind that it's not enough and it's not going to work. This is the problem with the faith versus works dichotomy. It's a false dichotomy. Because if you trust the Father, you will go out to sow the seed. The problem with the disciples is they keep questioning because they don't trust if you do the action as a farmer, it doesn't matter if you are worried in your bones about the harvest. If you simply trust the instruction to sow the seed, it's clear that you have faith because you wouldn't engage in this activity otherwise. Now, if you're thinking about faith psychologically or emotionally or what I feel, or, or you use the word call or vocation the way it's used in modern English to mean what you want to do or you feel you want to do, you're never going to understand what we're saying. To understand what we're saying, you have to put yourself in the mindset of a Roman slave in late antiquity who does not have choices to understand what it means to be given grace and to place your trust in the one who gave you a second chance and redeemed you from slavery. Because a minute ago, under the patrician, the best you could hope for was living in the dungeon, cleaning the latrine for your masters. Now, in the household of God the Father through Jesus Christ, you have the same work to do, but you have hope. Because no longer are you slaving in vain. You are slaving for the sake of the gospel. And you trust. Then they came to Jericho. And as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a large crowd, a blind beggar named Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the road. Now, this is significant because he's blind. Blind meaning you can't see. In English, we even use this blind trust, meaning I'm going to trust no matter what data I get, no matter what anyone says, I'm going to trust. Oftentimes, this is considered derogatory in English. But in scripture, when the blind trust in God, it's always something that's good. When he heard that it was Jesus the Nazarene, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. He heard the name Jesus and presumes immediately that Jesus is the one who can exercise the authority of the Father and show him mercy. And he throws himself at his feet. This is the functional definition of grace. If you're thinking about guilt and innocence, if you're thinking about justice, if you're thinking about right and wrong, you cannot understand verse 47 because it does not matter what this man has done, why he's blind, or who he is. He is taking his shot at a presidential pardon. 
He is throwing himself at the foot of the throne and hoping that on a whim, the king will cut him some slack. This is what grace is all about. When he heard that it was Jesus, he couldn't see that it was Jesus. He could only hear that it was Jesus. And this is always a challenge to the reader who has to trust in the report about Jesus. Because don't forget, the fact that we're even talking about Mark is because you and I, Father, trust that this book is something that's worthwhile and is filled with wisdom. We trust in that. That's why we continue to try to plant this seed is because we believe that this seed will bear fruit later on. And what happens here with Jesus, the blind man begs him for mercy. Now, don't forget, Jesus was just trying to explain to his disciples in the last passage, you know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great men exercise authority over them. So then the question is, is Jesus going to be like a ruler of the Gentiles or is he going to be like the son of God, the son of David, the one who is going to rule correctly according to Torah? To rule not as a king, but as a shepherd. Remember that when David was a shepherd, he functioned correctly. He functioned as a slave of God, an obedient servant. And when he became a king, that's when he became a monster. So there are two Davidic functions. And Jesus is going to manifest the function to which David is called ultimately as the Messiah, which is to be God's shepherd, to take care of God's flock. Many were sternly telling him to be quiet, but he kept crying out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And again, the other point about son of David here, it's repeated twice. He is acknowledging that Jesus is the Messiah. He's professing his powerlessness. He is professing Jesus's station and he is throwing himself at his kingly throne. But the throne of Jesus is a king's throne that's made to function as a shepherd, meaning it's a manifestation of compassion and care for the flock, not the accumulation of power and glory for the ego of the one who sits on the throne. Remember when we did Micah, we pointed out the interesting connection with the idea of the Eucharist in the New Testament. In the story of the Minor Prophets, the rulers of Israel consume the people for their own glory. In the New Testament, the Son of God, the Messiah, the Son of David, who you would expect to act like David in the Old Testament or the rulers of Israel, instead of consuming his people, gives himself over as food for their sake. And when you talk about the throne, this is significant because Roman emperors would carry a throne around so that they would always be seated in their throne. Jesus is never seated on the throne. His throne is much more like the throne of his father that flits around on the clouds among the cherubim, but never is bound to a place, bound to a building. Caesar is always bound to his chair. Jesus is bound to a different kind of chair. And here, I said, we're going to see what kind of ruler Jesus is, whether he's like a Lord of the, as a ruler of the Gentiles, or if he's like a ruler who follows Torah. Well, we know what the people around him are like. They are just like the rulers of the Gentiles who lord it over them. They are sternly telling him to be quiet. He's begging mercy 
from God, from the son of David, and they're telling him to keep quiet. And Jesus stopped and said, call him here. So they called the blind man saying to him, take courage, stand up. He is calling for you. And when you think about this section, 48 and 49, in terms of the small children, the powerless children, it proves once again that those around Jesus are still not listening. They wanted to keep the children away from Jesus, and now they want to keep this poor blind man away from Jesus. But if you're reading Mark, Mark here does not have to tell you with respect to the blind man, of such is the kingdom of God. By now you should figure it out if you're paying attention. The disciples didn't get it, so you're probably not noticing yet. Why does the kingdom of God consist of the blind? Because like children, they are powerless. The reason this beggar has no issue throwing himself at the feet of Jesus is because like a slave in a Roman household in late antiquity, he has no options, no choices, and no prospects. It's not that he's better than anyone else. It's that he understands his situation, whereas we are able to delude ourselves with our possession and our wealth and our status. It's like I told someone recently, the reason you are struggling between the choice of what you want to do and what you are called to do in the community is because, with all due respect, you have a choice. But if we are disciples, we are here for the sake of those who do not have a choice. That is what is at stake here. It's very, very important. That's why you have to force yourself to acquire the mentality of the powerless Because if you've been given a choice and they have no choice, every time you exercise that choice for your own benefit, you are dishonoring a child of God. You were given that choice by providence for the sake of those who have no choice. It's very important. And that's why in the gospel, everything is upside down. The people who are at the bottom seem to be the ones who have special status. No, Scripture is not playing a trick. It's actually pointing out true wisdom that those of you who are deluded by options and possession, you're the ones who are losing. You are the fools. Throwing aside his cloak, he jumped up and came to Jesus. Again, my cloak? Cast it aside. I don't need clothes. I don't need anything. What do I have that I need? I just need to be before the throne of God and beg his mercy. And if I'm lucky... I might get some of the scraps that fall from his table. It reminds me of the passage in Matthew where he talks about not having two cloaks. Here, this poor man only has one cloak and he casts it aside. Because like you say, he has no options. He has nothing. And he proves that he has nothing except what? Except trust that the son of David will have mercy on him. Now, does this mean that he doesn't know that Jesus will have mercy on him? To the contrary, his trust is so strong that it is like knowledge. So saying that somebody trusts doesn't mean that they lack something. Trusting doesn't mean you lack knowledge. Trusting means that you have knowledge of something that hasn't happened. Now, he's not predicting the future. In the same way, I don't predict the future that when I take a check to the bank, they're going to cash it. Ooh, I have some abilities. No, I just know how the system works. And you can know how this system works if you read Torah. The poor disciples and the crowds and everybody, they don't understand the system, so every time they call it wrong. But Jesus calls it right, 
every time because he trusts in the system. He knows the system because it's all laid out in Torah. Scripture, should you choose to place your trust in it, will always make you smarter and wiser than you're capable of. Scripture will always safeguard your steps. Scripture will always make you more valuable to everyone else around you. Jesus became a human being to teach us this fact. He became a human being to show us how someone who obeys the Torah and who hears the call of the prophets should actually behave, how they should act. It's a behavioral text. And answering him, Jesus said, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabboni, I want to regain my sight. We have to read in context or else we don't understand what's going on because what happened when the disciples came to Jesus? The disciples came to Jesus to say, Jesus, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Jesus here asks him, what do you want me to do for you? This is a huge contrast that if you don't read it in context, you'll miss. And so understand the reason why Jesus asks this is because he has thrown himself at his feet rather than Jesus's own disciples who want to manipulate him and tell him what he's supposed to be doing. This sentence, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me, holds no presumption. That's the point. It's a very good insight, Richard, that he did not tell Jesus what he wanted him to do. Jesus had to ask him. In this sense, it's significant. Here's the problem. People think that it's the conversation just between Jesus and this guy. As you said many times, Father, Jesus is a smart teacher. He doesn't just do this for the sake of this guy. He does this for the many who were sternly telling him to be quiet. Those are the people who need to hear Jesus say, what do you want me to do for you? Because how many people has he asked, what do you want me to do for you? None, except this guy. Not even his own disciples will he say, what do you want me to do for you? If I were Peter, James, or John right now, I'd be thinking, this stinks. Why is Jesus being so nice to him? I told him what I wanted, and he told me whatever. Why is Jesus being so nice to this guy? Why does he get to have what he wants? Jesus is functional. If you come to Jesus and expect something out of him, he's going to say, no, nah, I don't know. But if you come throwing yourself at his feet, he's going to say, what can I do for you? It isn't whether Jesus is generous or Jesus is stingy. Jesus understands the essential importance of throwing yourself at the feet of God and asking mercy. And this is why people in Western societies struggle with scripture. They struggle with this because they want to approach the one in authority and say, this is the company policy, Jesus. This is what you owe me. They want the policy. And there is no policy. You want your policy because you want power. Because you put your trust in the policy, not in the one who gave you Torah. Exactly. The policy is an expression of your strength. Now, I'm not saying that your corporations shouldn't have policies. I'm not saying that we should abandon the way modern society functions in its institutions. I'm saying that you have to understand a world in which you approach the one with authority and you have no power. If you understand that world, then you can understand what Scripture is doing. The reason Scripture can't save you is because you are not the Roman slave. You are the bloody patrician. 
And you can say all you want about equality and egalitarianism. You can be anti this and pro that. I don't care what your identity is. If you have choices and you have money and you can eat food whenever you want, you are the one that is opposing Jesus. That is the point of the mashal of the camel and the eye of the needle. Well, if you've got all that, what are you going to ask Jesus mercy for? You already got your mercy. What are you worried about? Not only do you have your mercy, but you go on Facebook and tell everybody else why they're wrong, whether you're a liberal or a conservative. In other words, you manifest self-righteousness, which already makes it impossible for you to be a blind beggar on the side of the road who casts aside his cloak and throws himself at the feet of the Lord. And Jesus said to him, Go! Yalla, go! Your faith has made you well. Immediately he regained his sight and began following him on the road. And the word go, although it's not the same as sent, which is linked to the same word that we use for apostle, it's still a commandment to take action. Go, and now he's following Jesus on the road. The odos, which is the road to the kingdom. It's the path that is in Mark paved in the wilderness by the text. When Mark talks about the path in the wilderness in the prologue of this gospel, what he means is that you hear the voice of the shepherd giving instruction. And it tells you which way to walk. You don't need Roman pavement to see where you're going. And that's the point here. This man now is on the path from the day of grace to the day of peace, the day of judgment, following the voice of the shepherd king. Now, again, this translation, your faith has made you well, and that's going to make you think that you believed in some dogma, and that's what made you better. No, he trusted. Because you trusted, you are well. And this is the problem, and this is the big difference. By throwing himself at the feet of Jesus, he showed trust. By telling Jesus who's going to sit where and telling Jesus what he's going to have to do for them, they show no trust whatsoever. So what makes you well is that trust, and that trust requires submission to the system. The system, whether you like it or not. The libertarians who want to trade only in gold, they don't trust the money. Fine, they don't use the money. But if you use the money, you have to trust. But as soon as you trust, then you have to play by the rules. And if the disciples want to trust in Jesus, they have to throw themselves at his feet and not say, you're allowed to come to Jesus. You're not allowed to come to Jesus. You're a child. You don't get to come. You're blind. You don't get to come. That's not, their, that's not what their job is. They throw themselves at his feet. And as he said, whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all, not just slave of Jesus, slave of all. And that's the last thing these disciples are doing, but this is exactly what this blind man understands. He is completely dependent on whatever anyone tells him to do, on whatever anyone offers for him. He is completely dependent, submits, yet he puts his faith in the son of David, and that is why he's well. His faith, again, meaning his trust, meaning that when he was thirsty, he was not too proud to ask someone else for help. The one who helps you is the one who saved you. But what Jesus means here is your willingness to humble yourself and admit that you needed me. 
that you were powerless without me. That gesture of trust made it possible for you to be saved. Because otherwise, I could offer you water till I'm blue in the face. If you're too proud because you think everyone should earn their own water, you're done for. The self-righteous person has a choice whether he hands him a glass of water or not. Oh, I'm a good person because I decided to give him a glass of water. The one who is slave to all, when your master says, bring me a glass of water, you don't wonder if it's a good thing or not. You bring him the glass of water. And if you want to be a slave of all, as soon as the beggar asks for a glass of water, you give him a glass of water because you have no other choice. And when you ask for a glass of water because you finally humble yourself and admit that you need someone else to be generous, and you drink the water, you don't philosophize about whether or not it was a good decision and you did the right thing by drinking the water. Because you know on the level of your biology that you were thirsty and you ascribe all gratitude and all credit to the one who was your benefactor in your hour of need. Thanks very much, Dr. Ben. Thank you, Father. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.